0: Perhaps Bitcoin can help Americans reflect on our history and remember that our true glory in Adams' words is not dominion but liberty and that our true march is of the mind and not the sword. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. what is up guys welcome back to bitcoin audible i am guy swan the guy who has read more about bitcoin than anybody else you know and we are getting back into the week with some amazing reads lined up uh, like i said in the last episode a treatise on altcoins is dropping probably tomorrow uh, we got tomer Strolights uh, getting back into his wide bitcoin series with part two and then the Thunder Network, and a different way to think about scaling, and so much more. Don't forget to subscribe to Bitcoin Audible. But before we jump into all of that, happy Independence Day, everybody. I hope you guys had a wonderful weekend and celebrated. You know, July 4th was a pivotal moment in history, and it's truly been a force for organizing protests and independence movements around the world. You know, the ideal that America held up and tried to achieve was the highest. It was one of equality, of all men are created equal, of freedom and individual rights, of freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of religion, and so many more revolutionary principles that have been the foundation for the outlawing of slavery, the civil rights movement, human rights movements around the world, for that matter. So where do we separate America the idea from America the political system? What did we miss in the founding documents that still failed so many? And does Bitcoin have a role to play in again empowering these core principles of individual liberty? And who better to read on this topic than Alex Gladstein. We have another phenomenal piece from Alex at the best publication of the land, Bitcoin Magazine, and we are going to get right into it. First, a huge thank you to our sponsors for the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet from Shift Crypto, empowering people to hold their own keys and find sovereignty and ownership. Someone actually just sent me another message the other day of them getting their BitBox and uh, I'd love to see it. i love to see people finally getting their hardware wallets. And uh, don't forget coupon code GUI, gets you 5% off. And then of course, swanbitcoin.com guy for empowering people to easily and automatically save in Bitcoin for a secure long-term future just like me. No hassle, no management, no timing the market, just a simple, Automated savings plan, low fees, set it once and forget it. Check them both out at GuySwan.com. You get 5% off your Bitbox and $10 free to start your Swan Bitcoin savings plan. And with that, let's get into today's read. And it's titled Bitcoin and the American Idea, written by Alex Gladstein. Has America strayed from its founding ideals? An activist and a refugee think Bitcoin can help it get back on track. Today, Americans celebrate 245 years of independence from the British Empire. On this day in 1776, our founding fathers declared, We, the representatives of the United States of America, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent States; that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown; and that all political connection between them and the State of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved; and that as free and independent States, They have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. This was a bold and risky action. Never before had a colonial state defeated its overlord, especially one at the apex of its global power. Against all odds, the Founding Fathers rallied a young nation and won freedom. The 4th of July is still, nearly two and a half centuries later, a cause for great pride across our country. The idea of America and the values on which it was founded animate resistance struggles around the world. The principles of free speech, property rights, equality of opportunity, individual liberty, and checks and balances on government power are ones to aim for and live by. But for some, the 4th of July seems like a hollow festival. America the idea has grown distant from America the reality. Our history is in many respects shameful. We enslaved African Americans. We pursued a genocidal conquest of Native Americans. We interned Japanese-Americans in prison camps. We invaded Vietnam and Iraq and launched the Forever Wars. We backed coups against democratically elected leaders. We have an ongoing war on drugs and prison industrial complex. And we have developed a sophisticated surveillance state. These are just a few examples of how we have strayed from the breathtaking words of the Declaration of Independence. At the base of the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor rests a bronze plaque with the words of the New Colossus, a sonnet by Jewish-American poet Emma Lazarus. The last few lines read, Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. As essayist Alan Farrington has pointed out, the United States has, in many ways, lost this generous founding spirit. Over time, that spirit has been sacrificed on the altar of the self-interested schemes of politicians and elites and on the pacts that our leaders made with dictators to secure U.S. financial dominance. But could the scarlet letters on Americans' history be dimmed by a new act of rebellion, a Declaration of Monetary Independence? If the 1776 Declaration was a document of political freedom, then in 2009 came a document of monetary freedom— Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin White Paper As noted by Joseph J. Ellis in Founding Brothers, a Pulitzer Prize-winning history of America's first leaders. The creation of a separate American nation occurred suddenly rather than gradually, in revolutionary rather than evolutionary fashion the decisive events that shaped the political ideas and institutions of the emerging state all taking place with dynamic intensity during the last quarter of the 18th century. Many of the lasting pillars of American society and governance were established in the span of just a few short years. This is happening once again, not with politics, but this time with money. As Ellis writes, the framework for America, quote, was built in a sudden spasm of enforced inspiration and makeshift construction, as is happening now with Bitcoin. The quest of the cypherpunks and Satoshi to establish digital cash beyond the control of the state was animated not by fear of an imperial power, but by the nascent threat in the 1980s and 1990s of the electronic surveillance state and of the looming loss of our liberties as we entered the digital age. In 1961, President Dwight D. Eisenhower gave a powerful farewell speech. He noted proudly how America was, quote, the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. But he also warned how the military-industrial complex that had grown as a result of our wars abroad posed existential dangers. If one had told the Founding Fathers that 150 years after their passing, the following words would be uttered by the leader of America to its people, it would have chilled them to the bone, but probably not surprised them.
1: Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new. In the American experience, the total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society.
0: Eisenhower also noted the technological revolution underway and warned against the rise of a, quote, scientific technological elite uncaring to our founding freedoms. The cypherpunks witnessed the realization of Eisenhower's dark vision as by the 1980s they felt the surveillance state creeping in and laying down roots for future expansion. They also recognized the limits of what could be achieved at the ballot box. There were diminishing returns to asking the government to protect our freedoms. Some liberties would have to be seized with open-source code. Bitcoin is the instantiation of a revolutionary idea, a system that cannot discriminate, that does not wield violence, that does not have special rules for the rich, that does not require identification or a particular status or level of wealth or race or creed to use, and whose rules cannot be manipulated by governments. Satoshi arguably took the best ideas from Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and their colleagues and gifted them to people around the world as the declaration of independence says quote, "when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invinces a design to reduce people under absolute despotism it is their right it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security" our new guard is bitcoin not just a founding document but a network designed to fight the despotism of central banking and financial surveillance, a despotism set in motion hundreds of years ago. A debate over the money system was at the heart of America's founding. One of Jefferson's biggest regrets was that in securing the capital's shift south from Philadelphia to Washington, he compromised with Alexander Hamilton and agreed to assume individual state debts into a national debt, centralizing the American financial system. This centralizing momentum grew over the decades, finally manifesting in the Federal Reserve arrangement we have today, which gives unelected bureaucrats control of the monetary system. Another item that gave the Founding Fathers pause was the weak performance of pre-revolutionary state paper currencies, which saw price inflations ranging from 800% to 2,300%, and the Continental Dollar, which was printed into oblivion and lost 99.9% of its value during the Revolutionary War. Maybe in that one case, some thought, it was worth it to debase a currency to win a war, But in the future, the same action of being able to debase the currency may launch many new, unnecessary wars. Those that followed this line of thinking would have neatly predicted America's current predicament, the forever war phenomenon, where the last three presidents have been at war every day of office, even though the domestic nation seems to be at peace. What if our monetary future does not continue down this path of centralization and debasement, but rather follows a new path of decentralization and growing value? Today's dollar hegemony was engineered by Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. Tomorrow, the currency of America could be based on the twin ideals of the Founding Fathers and Satoshi Nakamoto. Unlike America, which lost its first battle over centralization just a few years after its founding, Bitcoin won its first battle over centralization during the Block Size War, where user control and personal freedom defeated business interests and the concentration of power. On July 4, 1821, Secretary of State John Quincy Adams warned of an America that would become a global imperium, quote, in search of monsters to destroy. An America where the fundamental maxims of her policy have, quote, insensibly changed from liberty to force, where we have become, quote, the dictatress of the world. Perhaps Bitcoin can help Americans reflect on our history and remember that our true glory, in Adams's words, is not dominion but liberty, and that our true march is of the mind and not the sword. To help ponder this, I spoke to two people whose families and ancestries have borne the brunt of America's worst, who carry two strikingly different perspectives. They carry contrasting assessments of American history, and of our founding story, but own a similar optimism about the future of America, powered by Bitcoin. Bitcoin and Black America Isaiah Jackson is an entrepreneur and the author of Bitcoin and Black America, a searing critique of how the U.S. financial system systematically discriminates against African Americans to this day. The book is also a rallying cry for the black community to explore using Bitcoin as a way out of a system that unfairly benefits elites. Jackson writes how, quote, Before Bitcoin, no matter how much money you raised to support a liberation plan, civil rights movement, or march, ultimately you had to use the banking system. You continued to feed a system that did not have our best interests at heart. All of those deposits would enrich banks who encouraged redlining, denied loans to qualified applicants, and even beyond race, bankrupted the entire financial system in 2008 and then gave themselves bonuses to celebrate. Bank after bank, Jackson points out, have been caught and fined for holding blacks to different standards than whites. In one recent study, quote, Borrowers in upper-income black neighborhoods were twice as likely as homeowners in low-income white neighborhoods to refinance with a subprime loan. As a result of the legacy of slavery and practices like these, he writes that, quote, Black households have the lowest median wealth among races in America. His plan to change the fate of his community? To spread the world about how Bitcoin could spark a revolution among regular, working-class people. He says, quote, I specifically showed how we could gradually reject fiat currency, use Bitcoin, and start our own local economies. I propose that we build our foundation of social change and protest by steadily moving our funds out of the banking system. Because of Bitcoin, forced dependency on a system that keeps black people down is, he says, no longer the only option. He summarizes his mission simply Hopefully during the period of the biggest transfer of wealth in human history, the black community won't be last to the party. I reached out to Jackson, or Zay, as he's often known, to get his perspective on the fourth of July as an American holiday and his thoughts on the idea of America versus the history of America. Jackson is half African American and half Native American, with a family tree partly tracing back to slaves that were sold from Africa to Barbados and then on to South Carolina, and partly tracing back to Native Americans persecuted in Florida and Oklahoma. He says that, quote, Growing up in a black family, we're celebrating on July 4th, but it's not exactly a patriotic holiday. Hot dogs and cookouts and fireworks are fun, but for me, it's about being with family and enjoying the time off, not paying tribute to the founders. Jackson says that July 4th really has become a consumerist memorial, and not something that carries a deep meaning. He points to Juneteenth as something that resonates more as it celebrates the emancipation of slaves and the liberation of humans. Even on the idea of America, Jackson says that it was, quote, their idea of America. Imagine, he says, if they allowed black people or women to sit in on the creation of the Constitution, we wouldn't have had to wait around decades for the 13th or 19th Amendments. No. In practice, Jackson says America is not the land of the free. We're at a point in history, he says, where we've gone away from that completely. Jackson says that millions of Americans have been brainwashed by a broken public school system. He calls it the Pocahontization of history, where many kids think that the relationship between the European settlers and the Native Americans was as depicted in the Disney movie, as opposed to the brutal conquest that actually happened. Quote, as a former public school teacher and as someone whose mother and grandmother were public school teachers, he says, let me just say, we didn't teach kids about the real history of America. Jackson tells a story about his youth when he was 14 years old and the U.S. government invaded Iraq. He remembers watching the TV screen and seeing estimates that the military operation would cost more than a trillion dollars. To date, the U.S. has spent more than six trillion dollars on the war on terror. He was stunned. A trillion dollars? I was sitting in a neighborhood filled with poor people. We had no infrastructure, terrible education, terrible health care. Even as a young kid, he says, I knew we should have used that money domestically instead of using it to destroy another country. Jackson says he has one uncle who, quote, doesn't believe anything in the media. Everyone, he says, thought this particular uncle was crazy for questioning the Iraq war, which was very popular at the time. His uncle told Jackson that the war would never end, and that even though they promised it would be short, that it would be long, and that the leaders of America want to be at war. I thought he was a crazy person, but he was right. That was 18 years ago, Jackson says, and we are still fighting in Iraq today. Jackson says he is privileged to live in America. Here, he says, we take indoor plumbing, air conditioning, having a robust transportation system, and even having a relatively stable currency for granted. Many people around the world lack these things. He stops short of saying he's proud to be American. But not wanting to depress you on your independence day, Jackson says despite the past, he is hopeful for the future. Because of Bitcoin. Bitcoin, he says, is, quote, more American than apple pie. It is based on the initial ideals, where we started with a revolution, an overthrow of oppressors taking taxes without representation, challenging tyranny. He says Bitcoin is doing the same thing, just in a global manner. Could Bitcoin give real freedom where a piece of paper failed? The reason why the revolutionary dream remains unfulfilled, he says, is because the money is flawed. We have to fix the money. While Jackson feels no deep connection with July 4th, he does celebrate January 3rd, which is the birthday of the Bitcoin software. Jackson actually helped advocate for this date to be celebrated to remind Bitcoin users to withdraw funds from exchanges into self-custody. In a meme popularized by Jackson, no keys, no cheese. Jackson tells stories of people in the black community who've had their lives changed by Bitcoin. One of his favorites, he says, is a 15-year-old kid who came to one of Jackson's presentations in 2016 with his mom. The mom thought Jackson's lecture on Bitcoin was interesting, but it was the son who called him every day for a full month after the class. The kid ended up buying Bitcoin after working small jobs. By the time he was 17, he had made enough money through Bitcoin to pay for college. Now, he is 22 and runs his own web development company. Another story Jackson tells is of his friend Justin, who went to jail for two years, but then when he got out, got into Bitcoin. He learned about dollar-cost averaging, mining, trading, and even started a food truck in Charlotte selling food for Bitcoin. Five years later, Justin has his own book, his own series on Clubhouse, and a program to help inmates earn Bitcoin while they are in jail. People don't like to talk about the prison system, Jackson says. I have a cousin and a friend who are both in jail. They are trapped, but they have cell phones, and they can hold Bitcoin. Justin has helped many prisoners find a future through Bitcoin. The prison guards do search the belongings of inmates, of course, but many are allowed to have cell phones and the guards are not always combing through their phone apps. From the time we had slave patrols, Jackson says, we've always had police that were there to keep the lower classes away from the higher classes. That ended up becoming racial. We do need our police, but for the black community, they have been the victim of the double standard of crack and cocaine laws, which put black men in prison for 40 years while only giving one year for white men. There are millions of black people in American jails today for nonviolent drug crimes. I'd like to see these people who are locked up supported by bitcoiners. Even if that does not happen, Jackson says, they are finding support in bitcoin. Every great leader in the black community knows we need allies, he says. With bitcoin, we have allies everywhere. Jackson sees Bitcoin as remedying some of the worst aspects of jingoism and nationalism that have plagued America over the decades, whether it be the warfare state or the prison industrial complex. In his mind, Bitcoin can help us achieve a greater connection with the world around us. Technically, Jackson says, pointing to his Native American descent, my people were here first. Whatever this plot of land was, it wasn't called America and it may not be America forever. Bitcoin, he says, helped him change his perspective. If you look at a map of the world, he says, most of the lines were drawn by a group of colonizers a long time ago. These lines, he says, have nothing to do with me or my generation, but I'm a citizen of the world now. The lines don't matter anymore. From Baghdad to Bitcoin My first introduction to America, Faisal Saeed al matar says, was a tank in front of my house. al matar was born during the First Gulf War, and his first contact with the Americans was during the invasion of his country Iraq in 2003 when he was 12 years old. He had grown up under the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein, in an education system whose goal was to quote create as many ignorant people as possible, teaching, quote, only how to be loyal to the president. He says you always had to worship and you always had to say Saddam was right, no matter what. To illustrate the climate of fear he grew up in, Al-Matar says, quote, let's say that your father was against the president. He'll ask the son to kill the father with the pistol and ask the son to pay the price of the bullet that he killed his father with, That is the way he could instill fear in the sun and force him to show his loyalty to the president. Al-Matar could not access the internet or watch more than two state-controlled TV stations under Saddam. It was hell, he says. But eventually, Al-Matar broke through the firewall. He called the open internet a black market for knowledge, which helped him develop a belief in using, quote, reason evidence in scientific methods of inquiry rather than faith and mysticism in seeking solutions to human problems the first foreign political text he came across was thomas paine's age of reason almatar actually found it along with writings from orwell on a heavy metal message board this was his rabbit hole for discovering freedom he became more inspired, starting a blog where he explored secular ideas and even distributed copies of the American Bill of Rights to classmates. Almatar credits his father for instilling in him the values of critical thinking. He would tell Al-Matar that if he was going to form a belief, then he would have to build the supporting evidence for that belief. You cannot just blindly believe. From these words, Almatar said he followed, quote, a life of learning and not hating. When Saddam fell, he began to advocate for the separation of religion and state. I advocated a lot for human rights, women's rights, LGBT rights, he said, and that is not a friendly thing to do in the Middle East. At the time, al matar often thought, why did America invade us and not us invade them? After all, he comes from Baghdad which was once the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate in the Golden Age of Islam. At one point long ago, his people invaded and controlled a huge percentage of the planet, from the Atlantic Ocean to India. What the hell happened? asked al-Matar. How did we move from a superpower to a failed state? How did we move from occupiers to occupied? When the Arab Empire reached its peak, al-Matar says, it built its power on science and inquiry. Algebra, the clock, the camera, paper maps, and surgery all came to the world through Muslim culture during its golden age. That, al mutar says, is when there was openness, inquiry, free thought, science and reason, and the separation of powers. And then, there was a long decay into religious dogma. Al-Matar says he saw some of these same Golden Age attributes in the texts of the Founding Fathers. And this, he says, is why the U.S. is still dominating the world today. During the occupation, Al-Matar would go up to American soldiers and ask a lot of questions. They would be sitting in the Humvee and holding M-16s, he says, but I was not afraid. I found the humanity in them. Some thought what they were doing was noble. Others just wanted to pay bills. But after talking to so many of them, I didn't see them as monsters trying to kill Iraqis. It was war. In war, it's not good guys and bad guys. It's very gray about who is good and who is bad. As he grew older, al matar became a more outspoken atheist, founded the global secular humanist movement and became a target for Islamist over his writings and activities. I survived three kidnappings, he says, a Shiite by birth, Al Matar and his family got fake ID cards made with Sunni sounding names to clear Al Qaeda held checkpoints in their neighborhood. Later, he said, his best friend was killed by radicals, possibly because they mistook him for Al Matar. He ended up receiving death threats from Al Qaeda and the Mahdi army. His brother and cousin were killed in sectarian violence. In 2012, Al Matar finally fled Iraq and was admitted into the United States as a refugee. Over the past decade, he has founded and worked at a variety of organizations to connect activists from closed societies with Americans who can help them, and also to make knowledge and information accessible to individuals in the Arab world who are, according to Al Matar, surrounded by propaganda and fake news. Most recently, Al Matar founded the nonprofit Ideas Beyond Borders, along with the Singaporean journalist Melissa Chen. Together, they have employed more than 100 young individuals to translate works on liberty, human rights, philosophy, and science into Arabic, in total, dozens of books and tens of thousands of Wikipedia pages. Al Matar found inspiration for his work through the memory of the Bait al Hikmah or House of Wisdom, the storied Baghdad library that helped light up the Arab Golden Age. Al-Matar tells the story of a famous bookshop that still operates in Jordan today, where Mein Kampf, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and the Communist Manifesto are proudly displayed outside. Beyond the Quran, he said, these are the three most popular texts in the region. This, he says, is the stuff people have access to. Maybe people at the American University of Beirut would disagree, but for the average person in the Arab world, this is the text they can access. It creates a climate of hate. Al-Matar says his goal is to, quote, prevent refugee crises from happening in the first place rather than dealing with refugees. He points to the fact that less than 1% of internet content is available in Arabic. Ideas and knowledge, he says, will defeat ignorance and extremism more effectively than tanks and guns ever could. Perhaps surprisingly, given his military introduction to America through an invasion of his homeland, Al-Matar has become a huge fan. He is immensely proud of becoming a U.S. citizen on June 26, 2019. America, he says, provided me and many others with a lot of opportunity and potential. I don't think another country could have made the best of me. I've lived in Europe and Asia. There were always restrictions, always obstacles. It's no surprise to me that immigrants can be so successful in America compared to other places. I could focus on the negatives, Al-Matar says, hinting at anti-Arab discrimination. Yes, some people send me hate mail. But there are a lot of people who send me love mail. If you always think of yourself as a victim, you will only focus on the negative. I try not to do that. The immigrant experience in America today, he says, is largely positive because of the opportunities that exist and the values that this country was founded on. Look at the gay rights, Almatar says. In the past 50 years, there's been a huge change of mindset and a sweeping trend in favor of legalized gay marriage. Compare that to countries in Africa or Asia or the Muslim world. There are still places where they have the death penalty for being gay. He argues that despite all its flaws, the world is in a much better place because of American leadership. The fact that you can not only protest but change policy is not available to the billions living under authoritarian regimes around the world, he said. People disagreed with Bush, so they voted for Obama he said. This option isn't available for those living under Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin. Will the Russians who were against the war in Syria ever vote him out? No, they don't have that right. America is imperfect, but the system allows for change, which is different from the models of other superpowers. We'd be living in a much worse world if the Soviets had won the Cold War, Al-Matar says. Looking back at America's history, Almatar says that the evils that exist in the U.S. are not exceptionally American, that they, in fact, exist all over the world. And there is a case that can be made that America is one of the few nations that tried to move away from these evils. Yes, the Founding Fathers had slaves, Almatar said, but they also enshrined the concept of individual freedom. America leans good because of its founding principles, To me, these principles are like the scientific method. They help the nation self-correct over time. During their era, Al-Matar says, the thoughts of the Founding Fathers were absolutely revolutionary. The concept of individual rights was revolutionary. The world had never seen anything like it. America, he says, was founded in a way in which the government should fear its people, not where the people should fear its government. This is the opposite of the society where I grew up. Recently, Al-Matar has grown an interest in how Bitcoin can play a role in helping to liberate people around the world. His organization handled the Arabic translation of The Little Bitcoin Book, and he has been exploring how to pay translators across the Arab world in Bitcoin. Bitcoin, he says is a tool that could help spread American values more effectively than any war or intervention. I have seen how it can empower and connect people. He says it has a similar combination of innovation, anti-censorship, and openness that made the American idea so great. As the world continues to turn geopolitically, Al-Matar says we should consider how Bitcoin may benefit more open and free societies like America that despite its flaws is based on Enlightenment values and how it may cause fatal issues for dictatorial regimes. Bitcoin expands free speech, property rights, individual sovereignty, open capital markets, and checks on government power. America was founded on these values and can thrive with them, the Chinese Communist Party, Putin's dictatorship in Russia, or the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? Not so much, he says. When asked who his favorite founding father was, he instantly says, Thomas Jefferson. The first thing al did when he got to America, he says, was go to Monticello. He finds Jefferson especially inspiring on the subject of freedom of religion and compares his push for separation of church and state with Satoshi's push for separation of money and state. Jefferson was not perfect, Almatar says, but who is? He says slavery and the depopulation of Native Americans are the original sins of the United States. These stories need to be taught and remembered, he says, but we cannot judge the values of those living three centuries ago with the values of those living today. In a hundred years, he says, We may look back at today and say that the t-shirts we were all wearing make us all immoral because they were made with slave labor. So are we any more moral than the founding fathers? Consider that, he says. In my part of the world, Mauritania didn't outlaw slavery until 1980. And today so much of the Gulf cities are built with slavery, including the infrastructure for the upcoming World Cup. Some say that Martin Luther King Jr. was homophobic. Is that what we should judge him on? No, Almatar says. We should acknowledge the evil and the good. Saddles and Riders. In 1935, the African American poet Langston Hughes wrote, Let America Be America Again. Here are the final few lines. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be, the land where every man is free. The land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain, must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again, America. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains and the endless plain all, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. Hughes' words speak to the theme of this essay, that we have a constant tension in American experience between the animating idea so noble and the reality so flawed. To celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 1826, Thomas Jefferson wrote, All eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man. The general spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. These are grounds of hope for others, for ourselves. Let the annual return of this day forever refresh our recollection of these rites and an unfinished devotion to them. But today, we still have saddles and riders. Jefferson's own words reflect the ongoing imperfection of the American experiment, which has been lofty in ideals, but darkly tarnished in execution. The lead author of All men are created equal, and even the hand behind the pen that inserted a harsh condemnation of slavery into the Declaration of Independence, which was later removed by others, enslaved more than 600 people in his lifetime, and did not free any of them upon his death. The nebulous idea of America continues to defy simple black and white classification today. Even as al Matar is able to defend the greatness of America's vision and freedom, Jackson shows how the nation has a great rot inside and asks us to think about how its systems are fundamentally broken for so many citizens. In an amazing coincidence, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both passed away on July 4, 1826, exactly 50 years after the Declaration of Independence was signed. They could not possibly have predicted the struggles we face today, more than 200 years later, nor how the trade-offs they made to get America off the ground would evolve over time into civil wars, foreign occupations, and an increasingly centralized financial system. What Jefferson, Adams, Almatar, and Jackson could all perhaps agree on is that as we go deeper into the digital future, the original Declaration of Independence is not enough. A new Declaration is needed. One rooted in personal freedom, openness, prosperity, opportunity, property rights, and free expression. One opposed to slavery, discrimination, theft, double standards, confiscation, and censorship. A Declaration that could change America just as its own people changed it from a place founded on slavery to a place where slavery was outlawed. A declaration that can empower the black community, just as it can help immigrants connect to their families back home in countries far away. A declaration that could credibly claim a place next to the Statue of Liberty, alongside Emma Lazarus, welcoming the huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. In the end, Bitcoin may be that declaration in the original American tradition of anti authoritarianism and personal freedom that helps finally rid us of our saddles and riders. Let's hit a quick sponsor break and we'll jump back in. So, true story. I was hanging out with family this past weekend, I had an American Honey Bourbon drink in my hand, feeling good, talking about our plans and stuff, and I got a little buzz on my phone, and it said, you just stacked with SWAN. This is why I use SWAN Bitcoin. I set it up to stack whatever amount and whatever interval is right for me. I could stack every day if I wanted to, and it just works. I don't have to micromanage it. I don't have to constantly rush over there. Not to mention that they do have the smash buy button if I want to get a little extra or buy the dip but I'm always sitting with my wonderful and ever-growing stack of sats. And I know whatever I am doing, it is always working for me. swanbitcoin.com slash guy gets you $10 free for signing up and it helps support this show at the same time. Quit taking the time out of your life to do the things you know you're going to do, like adding to your Bitcoin savings plan. Automate it, with swanbitcoin.com slash guy and spend that time on life. All right. Alex Gladstein always with the amazing pieces here. Um, and uh, I got a couple other pieces lined up actually from Bitcoin magazine. Uh, so uh, stay tuned on those. Uh, there's there, there's a disconnect that I, or not a disconnect, there's an equivocation, I guess you could say, um Generally, in this discussion, and an inability to properly separate, and it's something I mentioned kind of at the very beginning of the show, there I alluded to, was the the separation between America, the idea, the ideals, the rights, the fundamental theory that led to the creation of America, and the U.S. political system. For instance, there's a quote from this piece. It says, quote, "We enslaved African Americans." We pursued a genocidal conquest of Native Americans. We interned Japanese Americans in prison camps. We invaded Vietnam and Iraq and launched the forever wars. We backed coups against democratically elected leaders. We have an ongoing war on drugs and prison industrial complex. And we have developed a sophisticated surveillance state. None of these things have any reasonable connection to the ideals of America. These these are not about liberty. These are not about equality of opportunity. These these are exactly where the American system failed to actually do what it was fully intended to do. Or where I guess you could say the American principles were abused. But there's something that and I'll just I'll push back just because and I know Alex isn't doesn't mean it in this context, but I just hate the use of this language, whether it's intended like that or not. The entire, that entire quote says, we, we enslaved African Americans. We pursued a conquest of Native Americans. We didn't do any of those things. The United States government did those things. We are not the United States government. There's a really great quote that um, kind of in my my journey from like, I used to, for, for a good portion of my life, I identified as a, uh, you know, American conservative sort of, uh, sort of a political disposition, I guess you could say. And like the ideas of Liberty were very, very real to me. Like they were, they were, I mean, the ideals still are, but I had the false impression that United States, the country, or I guess you could say United States, the political system was actually that ideal. You know, I was taught this history, you know, Jackson, Isaiah Jackson talks about it in in his, uh, you know, his interview with Alex Gladstein in this piece is that we're taught this cartoon idea of history that just paints the United States government itself as the hero of the ages. Just everything they've ever done is exactly right. And there were no trade-offs, there was no murky gray area. And I think that's where I like, like when you actually learn real history, you get this backlash. You see the flaws of all the people like in, you know, the founding fathers or whatever. And then end up actually hating the ideas themselves, the critical revolutionary concepts of individual freedom. Because you have an ad hominem attack on the person who said something about it. Um, And, you know, it's an interesting point to bring up, you know, uh, Al-Matar said, uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was very uncomfortable or may have actually been homophobic. I don't really know, but I, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. And do we throw away his ideas because of that? Do we put the ideas of equality in the trash because of one flaw of one human? Or do we actually hold the ideals above the person? And back to my original point, there was this great, um, a really great quote that uh, I saved from Marjan Astrapi, who uh, she's the author, or I guess the graphic novelist, I think it is, behind Persepolis, which is a really fun movie, something I saw in film school that I just thought was so great. And she's Iranian in, uh, and it was during the environment specifically where the U.S. had very, very heavy anti-Muslim sentiment across the country. You know, the height after, you know, uh, September 11th and everything. But the quote was, If I have one message to give to the secular American people, it's that the world is not divided into countries. The world is not divided between East and West. You are American, I am Iranian. We don't know each other, but we talk together and we understand each other perfectly. The difference between you and your government is much bigger than the difference between you and me. And the difference between me and my government is much bigger than the difference between me and you. And our governments are very much the same. I think the separation, like learning to to reject the framework of we are our government. You know, if, if my government goes over and bombs a bunch of people in Iraq, I am not the, I did not do that. I do not have to come up with some justification for that. I do not have to defend it as if it is something I supported when I clearly did not. It is evil and it is wrong and I rightfully called it out as such whether I had any control over it or not. And same with the horrible incarceration system in this country. I just, the number of people who excuse the statistic that per capita, the United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the world, higher than communist China, literally. The fact that that is dismissed by so many people, like are are we suggesting that we literally have the worst people in the world? Do we have the most violent and criminal and evil people on the planet such that that number of people need to be put in cages? There's clearly something wrong here. How does that get fueled? How does that stay propped up? And so many people fail to realize that the military industrial complex, the prison industrial complex our arguably, you call it a healthcare industrial complex, is propped up because they never have to deal with the costs. The costs are hidden behind a money that they can issue as debts and print for free. There is so much, so much inequality and injustice that is propped up because they can hide how much it costs people. Our financial system is at the heart of everything. The way that our money works is so core to exactly how corruption has spread through this country and the political system. And so many people, the vast majority of people, do not understand it. Do not, they do not see the puzzle pieces, the chain reaction from corrupt money to corrupt society. And it compounds. So many of these things compound the very problems that they're hidden, they're they're positioned as if they're some sort of solution to. I mean, this is why we have so much issue around the Second Amendment. You know, like 80% of the violence in this country is directly related to the war on drugs. And yet somehow removing the law that is causing all of that violence is never the solution to violence. It's how do we create a new enforcement agency? How do we take rights away from these other people? Because... The peaceful gun owners are clearly the reason why everything is so violent. Obviously it is not. You know there's something like 75,000 pages of federal tax code. In 1920 something, it was like 21 or like 27 or something when the federal law, like the federal like criminal law um at the federal level was first um I guess codified is probably the word it essentially fit into one volume. And by the 1980s, it was 50 volumes. Um, Like it's it's basically a bookshelf of just different criminal laws. And the acceleration of adding new laws and new regulations and new dictates has continued from on the outside. Like it's just continued ever since. Literally to the point that there are so many Federal and state laws, there's so many different stipulations, dictates, regulations and actual criminal activity. I mean, like there's on the order of like 50 to 100,000 potential criminal activities that are detailed out as federal law as crimes. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of relevant pages, so much so that literally throughout an entire lifetime, there's no way to actually cover it. And it grows too fast to actually keep up with it. Be honest with yourself. If laws, if the right law was really the solution to our problems, would we not have found it in hundreds of thousands of pages of crap? Wouldn't we have reached utopia already? You know, there's an analogy that I like to think about this. You know, America, the idea was built on the, the concept of simple law. You know, go back to another one of my favorite quotes by D. Hawk. It's quote, Simple, clear purpose and principles give rise to complex and intelligent behavior. Complex rules and regulations give rise to simple and stupid behavior. One of the reasons individual liberty actually works in practice is because it is a clear and simple set of rules and regulations so that people can actually organize themselves around something that is easy to understand, that is easy to know, that is two, three pages of this is what's wrong, this is what you shouldn't do. Outside of that, solve your problems yourself and come to a mutual understanding and voluntary arrangement. But we had no full nodes to defend the Constitution with. We had no way for them not to constantly creep their way into hundreds of thousands of pages of arbitrary crap that fueled their military-industrial complex, their special interest machine, their corporate subsidies, their political class, their privileged club where they toss around trillions of dollars like it's nothing, throw out 0% interest loans for 10-year periods to each other, And its systemic cause are the flaws left in our monetary system. It is because they can play with that money. They can issue those promises for resources and value that we pay for. They can issue them to themselves and their friends. And there's nothing we can do to stop them. When there is no accountability and infinite reward, how could you possibly prevent the system from being totally corrupted? But none of that has anything to do with American liberty. That is the loss of liberty. That is the loss of individual rights and freedoms. And this was not lost on the founding fathers either. This was, this was part of the plan. They're, well, not part of the plan, but they saw that this was something that at all costs needed to be prevented. Another great quote from Thomas Jefferson. Quote, I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around the banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. And what I think he means by first inflation and then by deflation is the credit cycle. It's by spreading out the like by issuing new debt into the system, which causes a boom, which causes everybody to go into debt to buy resources that bid up the price and make them beholden to the bank, even though the bank itself, the fractional reserve system, the Federal Reserve did not actually have the resources to need to be owed. You know, if I write down on a piece of paper that you owe me $50,000 and you go out and buy a car with that piece of paper, I didn't give you anything. You owe me a car. I had nothing beforehand. I just wrote on a piece of paper. I was I was given the legal right to issue that money. I bought myself a car through your slavery, through your need, your obligation to pay it back to me, even though I never had a car to begin with. I let you take it from somebody else. And owe it back to me. And if you don't give me the card, that's fine. You'll give me the $50,000 that I issued. Even better, it comes with 10% interest. So I get $5,000 a year just just for the brilliant privilege of creating money out of thin air. And the deflation is the calling of that credit due. When that economic boom turns into a bust, where do all the resources go? Who now owns the houses when you can't pay the mortgage, when you can't pay for your car? You don't make your payment this month. The bank gets the resources. The banks will deprive the people of all poverty until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. Why is it that the whole freaking country is indebted to the banks even though the banks have produced no real value in the economy they don't build the buildings they don't produce the networks they hold the money they are supposed to simply secure the money how is everyone in debt to the banks our money is broken and it is killing the american dream it is killing the american ideal and enabling this corruption it's enabling these injustices they persist and grow by the mechanism by which they manipulate the money. And I love Isaiah's quote towards the end of uh, the section on Bitcoin and Black America. It says, if you look at a map of the world, most of the lines were drawn by a group of colonizers a long time ago. These lines, he says, have nothing to do with me or my generation. But I'm a citizen of the world now. These lines don't matter anymore. Before Bitcoin, the best we could do to instill individual liberty was to create an isolated political system where we could welcome anyone to join us. And that's the beauty of freedom, right? That's the beauty, and Bitcoin has the same nature, is that we can invite everyone and having more people participate in that, sharing that freedom, and letting more people come and join us and work together voluntarily rather than against each other, It makes it that much more productive. It makes it that much more powerful. Our neighbors aren't obligations or burdens. They're here to help. They're here for us to trade and work together, not against each other. But if the promise of our money is systematically corrupted, how can that ever, how can that trust ever be sustained? I genuinely think Bitcoin is the rebirth of the American ideal. It's just without the American borders. It is individual liberty codified, and it's not political in that in that sense. It's not a political system. It simply has a truth of itself, and it can be defended by every participant of the system. Everybody in the network does their job. It is it is the new guard. Oh, I love that section of this uh, of this work. I'm gonna find the quote real quick, and maybe we'll close it out with that one. Uh, as the uh, Again, yeah, as the Declaration of Independence says, when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invinces a design to reduce people under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Our new guard is Bitcoin. Not just a founding document, but a network designed to fight the despotism of central banking and financial surveillance, a despotism set in motion hundreds of years ago. What if we can take one of the greatest seeds, one of the greatest rewards for corruption, and the very thing that empowers the corrupt to continue increasing their power, their purchasing power that they achieve through the manipulation And artificial printing of money is the very thing that allows them to hold their position. They can hire the mercenaries, the police, the enforcers they need to defend themselves and sell themselves to the people as our saviors. I mean, without them printing trillions of dollars arbitrarily, how would the economy survive? Clearly, clearly, I've seen the commercial a thousand times. Our holy counterfeiters are the only reason the economy even holds together. What if we could just remove that from the equation? Just take it out and be done with it. And that whatever system we set up in its place, however we chose to organize outside of that, we had to meet each other with a certain set of rights that we simply could not take away. Freedom of expression, freedom of association, property rights and the pursuit of our happiness that they are not guaranteed because we convinced our masters to let us but because we built a system that made them non-negotiable that is bitcoin and to me personally that is the american idea and i've said this before on the show some time ago but having been a serious you know Fat flag-waving conservative in my past who embraced the cartoon version of U.S. history, I guess you could say, it was really not easy to come to terms with the idea that I had quote-unquote lost my country. But there was a quote from Benjamin Franklin that just put into perfect simplicity something that I had had a really hard time looking for. Where liberty reigns, there is my country. Bitcoin is my country and I genuinely believe it is what will allow us to take the American ideals of individual freedom and human rights to the entire world. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's a grandiose, ridiculous idea. But if I think that's even a ghost of a possibility, the hell if I'm going to waste my time on anything else. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Bitbox and Swan Bitcoin for supporting the show, to the amazing Bitcoin Magazine, and always Alex Gladstein for these incredible pieces. Happy Independence Day, everybody. This is Bitcoin Audible, and until next time, take it easy, guys. This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.